Well, we are just exceedingly grateful that you have come to spend this time with us in this conference. Um, We have placed in your hands some outlines. If you'll turn to page 18, and as I worked with the speakers on this, I told them we want manuscripts or complete outlines, no fill-in-the-blank. That's really disruptive for those who are blank freaks. Um, because if they miss one, they don't hear anything for the rest of the conference. And, and uh, so we, you know, we just want to alleviate that uh, kind of a problem. And so we have some full outlines for you. And as uh, uh, Steve Pettit mentioned, I'm going to be giving you kind of an overview tonight. And other speakers with other topics will kind of tease out some of the details and some of the applications of this But we want to start tonight with how do biblical counselors, or how do biblical counselors view man's problems? And I'm going to walk through this uh, manuscript that you have in front of you and make some comments as we go along. And uh, you will have the entire thing in front of you. And I think it's important as we begin this conference to understand that those at the headwaters of psychiatry have a lot less confidence in how they are addressing and categorizing problems than the folks on the street trying to use that in facilities and offices and that sort of thing. And I want us to walk through that. I want you to hear from some of the leaders in the field of psychology today. And then I want to suggest why they have such a hard time Uh, coming up with even the right categories. In fact, we'll talk about Tom Insull just in a moment. Uh, He is a director, it was for a number of years, a director of the National Institute of Mental Health. But he said, frankly, when it comes right down to it, we may have all of our categories wrong. And he's talking about the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders published by the APA. And he said, there's so much overlap in our diagnosis that in any other branch of science, we would be laughed out of the laboratory. Now, this is the chief psychologist of the USA. Like we have a chief surgeon, surgeon general. This would be the psychiatrist general saying these kinds of things. And so I want to begin with a summary. At the beginning, it says, in recent years, those at the headwaters of psychiatry have expressed regrets that psychiatry has not determined the pathology nor um, discovered effective treatments for most mental illnesses. Some secular thought leaders in the field even question the validity of the official categories of psychiatric disorders. The popular press, most secular and integrationist Christian training institutions, and much of the mainstream medical establishment, nonetheless, operate with far more confidence in the current state of psychiatric categorization and treatment of mental disorders than those at the headwaters of psychiatry. And let me just express some, let me just share with you some of those concerns. Uh, the first one is by Tom Insell. He's a psychiatrist, former professor of psychiatry at Emory University, director of the National Institute of Mental Health, as I mentioned, director of Verily's mental health team. That is uh, a Google Alphabet uh, there. Uh, research teams, and then uh, became co-founder and current president of MindStrong Health. It's a research firm developing digital phenotyping for diagnosing mental illnesses. 
In one of his closing addresses, as he came to the end of his uh, tenure at the NIMH, he, um, I watched him in one of his videos where he laid out four, what he called, four inconvenient truths. And he said in that, in, in, um, uh, we have failed to bend the curve for um, uh, morbidity and mortality from mental illness. Um, we, haven't, we haven't bent the curve. We've bent the curve in a lot of other things. We've bent the curve of, uh, of incidents as we've gone along over the last 20 years. We've bent the curve in uh, AIDS, for example, HIV, in uh, juvenile diabetes, and several other things. But when it comes to mental health issues, we haven't bent the curve at all. And we haven't shown an increase in our um, ability to help. Inconvenient truth number two is that more people are getting more of today's prescriptions, but the outcomes are not any better. Inconvenient truth number three, we simply don't know enough yet. And inconvenient truth number four, without better diagnosis and therapeutics, we may not be able to bend the curve. And that's why he has gone into uh, a couple of think tanks to work on the neurobiology of the brain. And he said that the, the cure, he said, we have abandoned the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness 20 years ago. Now, it hasn't filtered down to the street because of a lot of, uh, a lot of the advertising and so forth that goes on. But he said, we, we, haven't, we haven't used the, mental Ill, uh, the, the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness for 20 years. And he said, really, the solution is going to be in the brain sciences. And we are starting what he called the, the, uh, um, the human connectome. We've, we've done the human genome. Now this is a human connectome where we're actually going to map the trillions of synapses that are going on in the brain. And once we do that, we know how to behaviorally tinker with those things and we'll be able to identify where the mental illnesses are coming from and how to solve them. In his concluding statement here that I I, want to bring, he said, I spent 13 years at NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, really pushing on the neuroscience and genetics of mental disorders. And when I look back on that, I realize that while I think I succeeded at getting lots of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large costs, I think $20 billion, I don't think we've moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, improving recovery for tens of millions of people who have mental illness. And Insel says, I hold myself accountable for that. Another person at the headwaters of psychiatry is Dr. Alan Francis. He was the chairman of the DSM-4 task force. The DSM-4, again, is a diagnostic and statistical manual of the American Psychiatric Association. He was the, the main chairman over all of the development of the DSM-4. So th- this is not a quack someplace. This is right at the headwaters of psychiatry. And he was also part of the leadership group for the previous edition, the DSM-3 and the DSM-3R revised. He is professor emeritus and former chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Duke University of Medicine. And the quotes below are from his book, Saving Normal. And as you see on the slide, the subtitle of that is An Insider's Revolt Against an Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life. 
Now, this, he is not in the backwaters of psychiatry. He's in the headwaters of psychiatry. And he says on page 10 of that book, the expectation that there would be a simple gene or neurotransmitter or circuitry explanation for any mental disorder has turned out to be naive and illusory. On page 56, he said, one of the greatest disappointments of modern medicine and psychiatry is that our classification systems have not succeeded in stimulating clear, explanatory models. The body, and especially the brain, have a particularity and complexity that seem to forever deny any causal answer. Page 99, he says, a really brilliant marketing trick of the modern drug companies was to persuade doctors to treat patients who weren't really sick, while at the same time convincing normal people that they were really sick. On page 32, he talks a good bit in his book about diagnostic inflation. He said that occurs when we confuse the typical perturbations that are part of everyone's life with true psychiatric disorder. And he says this, which is relatively uncommon, perhaps 5 to 10% of the population at any given time. That's far less than what you'll hear in the news. Mental disorders should be diagnosed only when the presentation is clear-cut, severe, and clearly not going away on its own. The best way to deal with everyday problems of living is to solve them directly or to wait them out, not to medicalize them with a psychiatric diagnosis or treat them with a pill. He wrote the book in the DSM-IV. Prematurely resorting to medications, short-circuits, the traditional pathways of restorative healing, such as seeking support from family, friends, and the community, making needed life changes, offloading excessive stress, pursuing hobbies and interests, exercise and rest, distraction, a change of pace. Overcoming problems on your own normalizes the situation, teaches new skills, and brings you closer to the people who were helpful. Taking a pill labels you as different and sick, even if you really aren't. Medication is essential when needed to reestablish homeostasis for those who are suffering from a real psychiatric disorder. Medication interferes with the homeostasis for those who are suffering from the problems of everyday life. And that would be the 90 to 95 percent of people that he says do not have mental illness. And he says on page 233, always be suspicious about a diagnosis and treatment plan when you are offered a prescription after a seven-minute visit. Or if the doctor offers you to start out with free samples, he says immediately, find another doctor. Another leader in the field is Joel Paris. He is also a psychiatrist, professor of psychiatry at McGill University in Montreal. And his uh, major book is The Intelligent Clinician's Guide to the DSM-5. And this is the second edition. He says, research is nowhere near to solving the problems at the core of mental illness. Most psychiatric disorders remain syndromes. That means they've not discovered any pathology that nails it as a disease, and so therefore it's called a disorder or a syndrome. We are still in the dark about the nature of most disorders that psychiatrists treat. We have a lot more data after 30 years, but their interpretation remains controversial. Advances in neuroscience have not succeeded in explaining any mental disorder. And then we have Peter Bregan, who conducts a private practice of psychiatry in Ithaca, New York. His background includes Harvard College, 
Case Western Reserve Medical School. It includes a a two-year staff appointment as a full-time consultant at the National Institute of Mental Health. He's taught at several universities, including Johns Hopkins University, Department of Counseling, and most recently, State University of New York in Oswego, and the Department of Counseling and Psychiatric Services. His uh, key book, uh, a recent book in, in the last couple of years, is Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, and this is a guide for clinicians and families and uh, the people helpers in the lives of these folks. And he says the only, chemical, the only biochemical imbalances in the brains of people who see psychiatrists are the ones put in there by the psychiatrist. We don't have any evidence that any routine psychiatric problem from anxiety to depression, even schizophrenia, has anything to do with a biochemical imbalance. And that's a pretty mainstream thought at the headwaters of psychiatry, pretty, pretty generally across the board. The concerns over the failure of psychiatry to classify and validate mental disorders grows every year. The DSM-5 itself, in the opening pages, admits that, quote, past science was not mature enough to yield fully validated diagnoses. The diagnoses are fairly reliable statistically in that most clinicians taking the same disorders will come up, the uh, same um, symptomology from patients will come up with the same diagnosis, but what has not been proven valid is that the diagnosis themselves are valid. And the DSM itself admits past science was not mature enough to yield fully validated diagnosis, that is, to provide consistent, strong, and objective scientific validators of individual DSM disorders. Now, that's coming, again, from the headwaters of psychiatry. Now, we also have to be fair that because the church has its own problems in dealing with people. Number one, the church at times... uh, often has referred, has not ministered well to the sin and suffering of God's people. I think we have to be honest and upfront with that. Consequently, well-meaning Christian leaders have sent counselees and friends to secular therapists and to integrationist Christian counselors who employ the same therapies because spiritual leaders did not have adequate answers for the challenges of life that God's people face. Secondly, secular professionals and caregivers see mental illness through a reductionist lens of biology, biological and chemical imbalance causes, even though the DSM-5 and many leaders in the field of psychiatry lament that there is a, quote, growing inability to integrate DSM disorders with the results of genetic studies and other scientific findings. And that is a statement out of the DSM-5 itself. When approaching counseling in this manner, the church has placed greater confidence in the flawed and incomplete treatments of secular psychology than in the ability of God to counsel struggling believers through his own people wisely and skillfully using his word. And thirdly, the church has often been just as reductionistic when its caregivers counsel believers with formulary answers. God's people are not served well when they're exhorted to merely, quote, read the Bible, confess sin, pray, and do right, end of quote, though these are essential to a thriving walk with God as we face suffering and our own sinfulness. The Bible presents a robust revelation of and remedies for the self-serving motivations 
the distorted values, the misguided cognitive interpretations, and the unwise choices of the human heart as individuals respond to the challenges of living on a sinful planet. Furthermore, God presents in his word the essentials of methodology for effectively ministering to others to resolve these issues. So I just want us to understand what our current condition is from the psychiatric world, at the headwaters at least, and what is our concern even when we're, self, uh, when we're, we're self-evaluating uh, evaluating and uh, looking at our own flaws of, of helping within the church. And I want to look next at God's perspective on the true nature of man and his problems. And before we get to the text in front of us, I just want to put an image in your mind here. I grew up in a, a, in, on a farm in South Dakota. My father was a mechanic. And it was my grandfather's 3,000-acre cattle farm and raised all of the grain and uh, hay for uh, a couple, uh, 700 head of cattle, a couple hundred head of hogs, and about 700 head of sheep. And my mom kept scads of chickens. Um, but there was a lot of machinery to do that much farming. And Dad loved, he hated farming, but he loved machinery and loved mechanics. Now, let's say that my father is working on, let's say, on the engine for the self-propelled combine. Or he's working on the engine for the Oliver tractor, the D6 Caterpillar. And Dad understands fuel delivery systems. He understands carburation, and, and that, was the day, that was long before um, uh, fuel injection. And he understands carburation, and he understands the mechanics of the engine. He understands the inner workings of an internal combustion engine. He understands about the pistons and the fly the flywheel and the push and the and the rods and and the lifters and the valves. And he understands all of that stuff. But what he does not understand, or doesn't even really know, exists, is the electrical system. And so, let's say he gets a new implement. My grandfather buys a new implement, and it works just fine for uh, several weeks, and then the engine starts having some trouble. Now, remember, Dad doesn't know anything about an electrical system. Now, he's seen wires, and he knows you've got to charge battery, but that's about all he knows about it. He acknowledges that there's some other system here, but he doesn't know much about it at all. Now, no amount of tinkering with the fuel system or with the mechanics is going to overcome the problem of fouled plugs or of a dead coil, of a voltage regulator that's gone back in the, bad in the electrical system. He's not going to understand any of that. And he can tinker with the things he knows about, but he will never get that engine to run optimally unless he understands all of the systems within that engine. Now, here's the problem that the secular world has. They might acknowledge, and some increasingly are acknowledging, that spirituality has some kind of an improving help on people. Like my dad might know the wires are there and that there's electricity that goes through them, but he doesn't understand the key components. And you can tinker with man's biology all you want, but, but what we have to understand is that man is, first of all, an image bearer of God. There is nothing more complex than someone who Im- images the Creator. And if you don't understand that, you can do all kinds of studies. But you'll always get the answers skewed because you don't understand the electrical system. 
And you're going to tinker with all the other things and you'll get a little bit of improvement, but it, it, it's not going to last. And it's not the creation, the creature is not going to run optimally. So let's start with this paragraph. All treatments are based upon theoretical models. That is underlying assumptions that state these things, the goal of treatment and therefore a description of success. Theoretical models also present the nature of the problem. If you don't understand man as a fallen image bearer of God, you're never going to get the nature of the problem correct. And the methodology of treatment. Your theoretical model provides your your methodology of treatment and the structures through which people receive help. And you see in italics, a biblical worldview provides the only accurate description of the nature of man, the nature of his problems. These are his non-organic problems and the nature of the remedies to help man in his struggles. Man is an image bearer of God. Therefore, he is a rational being, thinking, interpreting, reasoning, believing. The rest of the creation is not rational. Beavers are not rational. If beavers were rational beings, they would not still be making dams out of mud and sticks. They would be steel reinforced concrete. They're not rational beings. God made us rational beings to be able to understand his mind and to think his thoughts after him and to interpret life through his eyes. And if we're not using our rationality for those purposes, we will always get it wrong. He's a relational being. Animals were not made relational. They may run in packs. They may run in herds. But two dogs don't sit down in front of the fire at night and talk about their hunt like a couple of hunters might in a cabin. Talk about the rabbit that got away, but I know where to look for him tomorrow. Spot, where's your, you know, where are you going tomorrow? They, they're, they're not relational. We are worshiping beings. Every human being is a worshiping being because he's created in the image of God to worship God. But as was quoted earlier today, Jeremiah 2.13, God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And we will worship something. We will, the Bible says that we will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. We will exchange the truth of God for a lie and we will worship and, and serve and ourselves rather than the Creator. We are made worshiping beings. We're emotional beings with desiring and feeling. We're volitional beings, choosing and committing, and we are dependent beings. Adam was made a dependent being. He was not made autonomous. And any attempt to try to get a man to live autonomously will always end in failure because man, the creation of God and the image of God, was made to function and thrive only when in dependent, reconciled, dependent relationship with his creator. And he cannot function optimally without that. He was made to have that connection with God. Number two, God created us in his own image to honor him by reflecting his excellence to each other. This is what you and I need to be doing within the church. We honor God by reflecting his image in us to one another. He made us to find in our relationship with God and his words all that we need to flourish as the epitome of his creation. 
And man flourishes as his creator intended, point A, when his thoughts about all things are governed by God's revealed thoughts to man in the scriptures, that is wisdom. Man flourishes as his creator intended, point B, when man desires the same things God desires for himself and his creation, and that is loving God and his neighbor as himself. And man flourishes as his creator intended, point C, when a man's choices reflect a commitment to put God first in all things for God's glory and not his own. So man is an image bearer of God, but he's also a fallen image bearer. And point A, while the fall did not obliterate the image of God in man, that image remains severely marred as Satan's supreme act of vandalism against God's image in his creation. Let's say that when I was dean of students, it didn't happen, but let's say when I was dean of students and I had to discipline a student, maybe suspend him or give him some kind of a probationary status, and let's say that his, a friend of his was not a happy camper because of that. And let's say that that friend also worked custodial and cleaned my office at night. In order to get back at me, you know, murder might be overkill, pun intended. Um, so what he does, he goes into my office and sees the portraits of my family and my wife on the credenza there, and he takes those out of the uh, out of the frame, and he gets a sharpie out of my drawer, my desk drawer, and he draws horns and mustaches on my three daughters and on my wife and on me, and puts them back there. You know what he has done? He can't harm the original. Uh, that my, my, my children and my wife, but he can vandalize their image. Satan could do no harm to God, but he could vandalize the image of God in every one of his major creation, mankind. And you know what Jesus did? He came down and he paid, the, and we joined in that mutiny with Satan, every one of us we all have turned to our own way. And Jesus came down and he paid the penalty for us turning our own way and offered salvation from hell and the righteousness of his own son, of himself, to us who would acknowledge I do deserve hell for my mutiny against God. And I acknowledge that Jesus is the only Savior, and I need him, and I confess my sin. That person becomes a child of God, and God places his spirit within that person. The word of God now begins to have meaning to him, and God begins the process of redeeming. He's redeemed him and now restoring that man to the image of God, the image of of his son, to the, uh, to the glory of God. And that's what we do in counseling. That's what we do in our discipleship. This is what we do within the body of a church as we minister to one another. We're all fallen image bearers, but God is in the, is, has, a, has a mission to redeem and restore fallen people to the likeness of His Son, to the praise of His glory. And so every counseling situation, every trial we face... And that trial can become because of other people's sins against us and we suffer. It can become because our, our sins have self-inflicted suffering. 
It can be because we live on a fallen planet where stuff goes wrong. And all those things become trials. And God in his love and in his wisdom and his power uses those trials, James tells us, to complete us again so that we can bear the image of God to one another and to a lost world. And counseling that does not move toward that end, the standard is Jesus Christ. The means of that is the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And counseling that does not include those things for this image bearer in his trial is not biblical. We can relieve symptoms, but we cannot join God in his mission of what he's trying to do through that pain and through all of that suffering. Point B, under number three, Adam and Eve chose to be influenced by someone who lied to them about God, about themselves, and about God's ways. That's a whole session in itself, but I I tell folks in our addiction ministry, behind every fall is belief in a lie. It's true for me every day. It's true for you every day. We believe lies about God. We believe lies about ourselves. We believe lies about the way God's world works, as Adam and Eve did. And man must respond to God biblically to the problems of the fallen human condition. And this is a very, very important thing for us to understand here. Point A under that, mankind now exists in a fallen world filled with losses. Do you feel those losses in your own soul? I do. If you minister to people, you, 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 your own heart grieves and groans under, while you watch them suffer. And Paul says that the whole creation groans and travails in pain, waiting for the restoration of this whole thing in, in, in Romans 8. And he says, and we within ourselves groan. Every time my thoughts go a wrong direction and my ambitions go a wrong direction and my desires go a wrong direction, anytime that happens and God's Spirit convicts, my heart groans. I, I long for the day when, as John says, I will be like him because I'll see him as he is. And in the meantime, everybody that has that hope in him purifies himself even as God is pure. And I long for that day when I will not fight my flesh, my sinful nature. I will be glorified. And I will be able to worship God without the taint of my own flesh. I mean, even my prayers, probably the most holy thing I know to do, my, my, my prayers have to be laundered. before They're so, they're so tainted. Do you, do you ever know, see that? How they're tainted with our own flesh? I can get up off my knees after a wonderful season in prayer with the Lord. And I'm thinking about his glory and about his task and his mission and and grateful for being a part of what he's called to do. And as soon as I get done, I, I, I stand up and my own flesh says, that was a really good prayer, Berg. That was great. You know, and I think, ah. Oh, for the day when that will never happen. But now we battle, don't we? And we sense that loss. The suffering and loss that we face on a fallen planet and our fallen responses to those losses, which only complicate our losses, 
are designed to drive us to God, not away from Him. My own heart, if I'm going to hardship, I just want to be left alone. And God says, no, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke of discipleship upon you and learn of me, and you shall find rest for your souls. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, Though our outward man perish while we groan and all these losses, though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction. Now, how's that for a reinterpretation of our problems? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. And the questions we must ask ourselves are, did, whatever I'm facing, did God give us examples of people who face these fallen human conditions? What did God say to them? What did God reveal about himself to them? Biblical counselors must start with God's very words to men and women facing these fallen human conditions. And I've listed to you here what I, what I think are about the, the ten most common, probably cover 98% of what I deal with in my own life and what, other, what I deal with in, in other people's lives. So let's think in biblical categories here for a moment. You know, if, 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 a, if a believer is facing uncertainty and vulnerability, let's say they're waiting for a diagnosis to see if that tumor was benign or not. That's vulnerability. That's uncertainty. Let's say that because of we're facing something with our work where our jobs might be going away or, or the plant might shut down, that is facing uncertainty and vulnerability. And I, I, don't, I don't want my counseling students that I'm teaching to think that their job is to counsel a diagnosis. Their, their job is to counsel people in fallen human conditions with the words that God says to people in those conditions. So is there anybody in the Bible that faced uncertainty and vulnerability? How about, how about David running from Saul? It's really hard to work for a spear-throwing uh, uh, king it, you know, when, you're, when, when your music playing is getting interrupted by spears, it's really hard to concentrate on what you're doing. And he's running for his life. Or Israel being taken captive by the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians. Are there any uncertainty and, and, and vulnerability that these people face? So what does God say to people in that condition? He says things like Isaiah 41.10 Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, I will help thee, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. That's what God says to them. And what does God reveal to himself about them? You know, if you and I were asked on a theology test, what is God like? We might say he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's immutable, and all these things. If you ask David, he's saying, what is God like? He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my high tower. He's my sun. He's my shade on my right hand. He's my, he, he is my, uh, my, my life. He is my all. David knew who God was. And when he faced uncertain and vulnerability, 
he turned to that God. If you don't, you end up with anxiety disorders. We don't counsel those disorders, although the Bible has much to say about that. But how much better to deal with people at the headwaters of the problems? That is a fallen image bearer, even though he's redeemed, is facing a fallen human condition, and he needs to know what God says to people in that condition and what God promises to people in that condition and what God says about himself to those people in that condition. Well, another another category. Misplaced dependencies. I, I quoted for you Jeremiah 2.13. Where the people are turning away from God as a fountain of living waters and hewing out cisterns to, to, to gather their own brackish water and broken cisterns that can hold no water. These are misplaced dependencies. And our, our place where we most of all depend instead of God is on ourselves. Or we latch on to some other human being. Those are misplaced dependencies. Does God say anything to people like the children of Israel when they're looking to other things for redemption and other saviors? And he says, yeah, you need to repent. You need to come back to me. What does he say about himself? Go, go read Revelation 2 and 3 when Jesus himself is talking to churches who have abandoned him in some cases. And he said, you repent and do the first works. You come back to your first love. That's me. What about, what about the situation of adversity? Anybody in the Bible face adversity? Hard times. How about Job? How about the Apostle Paul? He says in, in, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 7, we would, or 8, we would not have you ignorant brethren of our trouble which came to us in Asia. We were pressed out of measure. Ever been there? Pressed out of measure? Beyond strength? In so much that we despaired even of life. And then Paul says, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raiseth the dead. Our tendency is to trust ourselves and our own ideas and what we want to go after. And God says, no, you need to come back to me. So when we're facing adversity, we need to ask, is there anybody in the Bible that faced adversity like Joseph? Look at those Hebrews 11 heroes of the faith, especially the last half of that chapter. These faced adversity. What did God say to them? What did he reveal about himself to them? This is how we counsel biblically. What about people who are facing injustice? Boy, there's a lot of that today. And it's only going to get worse Second Timothy 3 tells us that in, the, in these latter days, men will be lovers of themselves and they'll be heady and high-minded and incontinent and fierce. And those violent kind of people are going to produce a lot of injustice. Is there anybody in the Bible who faced injustice? How about Joseph? Many, many people. What did God say to those people? What did he reveal about himself to those people? That's the counsel you and I need to be given. The Bible has covered all of the problems that a human being can cover, can can experience, and offers God's words and God himself as a solution, requiring man to cooperate with him and what he's trying to do and restore his image in them through that adversity and injustice. What about unfulfilled desires and discontentment? Hannah comes to mind. And others in the scriptures who long for things. How about the second half of Hebrews 11? These people saw these promises afar off and never got to taste them. 
But they searched for a city whose builder and maker was God. And his words were the evidence of things not seen. And they trusted the words of their God. And they lived with unfulfilled losses, uh, desires and, 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 and were tempted to discontent. How about overwhelming situations? Where n- none of us have the luxury, do we, of having just one problem at a time? I mean, do you, do you get it that way? Uh, I get them in waves, and I, I think you do too. God has much of the Psalms are filled with David's cry of overwhelming trouble. Psalm 18 is a good example of that. What does God say to people who are overwhelmed? What does he promise about himself to people who are overwhelmed? That's the counsel you and I need to be given. What about people who are disobedient to God and, or have immature heart motivations for obedience? They're doing it to be seen of men. Eye service, Paul calls it. Does God have anything to say about that? Does he offer anything about himself to those things? What about the fallen human condition of guilt and lust and temptation? Does God have any, uh, anybody in the Bible face guilt, lust, and temptation? And what did God say to them? What did he offer about himself to them? That's the counsel we need to be giving them. What about difficulty making decisions? We have that problem in a fallen world. And determining the will of God. Anybody in the Bible have difficulty making decisions and determining what they ought to do? What did God say to them? He says to Abraham, just leave and I'll show you where you're going to go. You know, that's, and, and God says, and I will be your exceeding great reward. God talked to, to Abraham and said, this is what I will be to you. Now, when we look at this list of 10 different human conditions, as I mentioned, most of us don't have the luxury of having one of them at a time. We, have all, we might have all of these at once. And if we don't handle them biblically, it's going to come out looking like all kinds of disorders. And this is why the, the, the secular world, because they don't factor in the fallen human condition we all live in and the fallen human heart that we still have, though we're redeemed, because they're not factoring in that, they can't isolate all these things and say, well, we got to get it down like we do diseases, like we, have, like we have diabetes or some other disease. We can't narrow it down. Because this is a very complex fallen world we live in. You can never get this down to narrow pigeonholes. We are fallen human uh, uh, image bearers of God, living in this fallen human condition not with, and don't have the luxury of one problem at a time. And when we're not handling these biblically, and, and, and please, please don't, don't think, well, all biblical counselors do is say, well, if you would just grow in the Lord, you wouldn't have any trouble. Well, we don't say it with a point with a shaking finger, but that is true for all of us. We grow out of our tribulations and our troubles. That's the whole theme of James. That's Romans 6, 7, and 8. That's the theme of the Psalms. What that is is not a finger-wagging condemnation. What it is is offering hope. We all can become what Jesus wants us to be through these tribulations. I've been meditating on James 1 in recent days, and I tell you, when James says, my brethren, count this all joy, or or that word count is like an accounting term. 
Add all of these things up and follow the, the trail, so to speak, where this trial is going to end up in joy. There's a process where that happens. When you fall into these various trials, knowing this, at this testing of your faith, your ability to still see God in this situation, in this trial, where the testing of your faith worketh endurance in you or patience. Sometimes we say, boy, he really tries my patience. God, no, God says he's trying your faith. Do you still see God? And he says, and, and he says, for this produces endurance, and let that endurance have its completing work in you, that you may be perfect or complete and entire, lacking nothing. Men and women, I lack a lot. I run out of wisdom. I run out of patience on a regular basis. I run out of joy. I run out of peace. I run out of grace. I run out of all of those things. And God says, I know how I can complete you, Berg. We'll just turn up the hot water in the, in the, in the coffee, in the teacup, and what comes out of that tea bag shows what's in your heart, and we'll just, you and I will work on that, and we'll change you from the inside, so when you get on the hot water, the right thing comes out, and you, and you honor my son. Men and women, if we see that our God is completing us through our trials and our suffering and the effects of our sin... We can rejoice. God, when, when, when God chastens, when God rebukes, He's doing what He promised. He's wanting to make me like His Son. It's a wonderful thing. I don't want to stay the way I am. The last paragraph in this section. Man is a very complex physical, spiritual being. A unified duality that is two parts, material and immaterial. His struggles cannot be reduced to imbalanced chemistry or neurological dysfunction. He is a disintegrating being at every level unless reconciled to fellowship with God and intentionally pursuing the restoration of God's image in his soul. By cooperation, it takes the humility and the submission to cooperate with the Spirit of God who uses the Word of God to develop Christ-likeness in him in the midst of his trials. Point D, secular psychiatry and psychology languish for answers to man's problems because secular studies ignore man's true nature. He has an electrical system. There's a living God-imaging soul in this person. The limitations of secular studies. This is a quote out of our BJU philosophy statement. Few other branches of science deal as directly with the complexities of a being that is both spiritually immaterial and eternal. This soul is immaterial and it is eternal. And he's also materialistic, uh, materially physical, as does psychology. Psychology deals with this man, this physical being, with this eternal, immaterial soul. Studies of the non-living creation, for example, physics, geology, and astronomy, or studies of plants like botany and animal zoology, concentrate on the parts of creation which display to the spiritually sensitive observer. And I praise God for the dozens of biblical scientists he has on our faculty here. And they are spiritually sensitive, and they can look at something under a microscope or through a telescope, and they see the glory of God. 
as God says about his creation in Romans, in Romans 1. They see his existence, his power, sovereignty, and wisdom. Psychology, however, studies the component of creation which reflects the very image of God. It's not just seeing the glory of God. When you study the human being, you study, you're studying somebody who is the image of God. And secular research of human problems does not factor in man's fallen, man's fallen and sinful nature or man's inclination to censor God from his thoughts or man's propensity to worship and serve himself. This is not a part of the science of why people respond and do what they do. Or the disturbing effects of unredeemed man's disconnection from God and therefrom his enabling grace during trials. Many such studies reveal an ignorance or outright dismissal of the students uh, of the subject's status as an image bearer of God and the subject's need to know his creator and his words in order to truly flourish under God's rule in God's world. Consequently, the conclusions reached by such research will be distorted and severely flawed from a biblical perspective. So what is the place of scientific studies of man and his problems? And other speakers will tease this out more tomorrow. Point A, science can help us help as it attempts to investigate and organize and utilize the non-human created order. Point B, secular scientific studies about humans, however, contain serious flaws because they consciously exclude the most important data about human beings, their spiritual image-bearing status. And by the way, if we're not addressing who this person is that we're counseling as image bearers of God and fallen, but though redeemed and God wanting to restore them, and this is, how, this is what God says when you're going through these kinds of trials, the adversity of your parents' divorce, the injustice of, of, this, of, of this divorce of your own spouse, or whatever it is, if we're not leading them to that trial to God's restorative work in their soul to, to bring the image of God to bear in their lives. We aren't doing Christian counseling. We're tinkering with the fuel system and we're tinkering with the mechanical system, but we're ignoring the entire electrical system. Point C, while we rejoice in some of science's symptom-relieving discoveries, like how to calm the body during a panic attack, how to recognize and address the dissociation of a trauma victim, or how to restore extended sleep loss with a temporary mild sedative, etc. We must never forget that only God can remedy the problems of suffering and or sin at their core. Only God can infuse a soul with the joy and the peace and the fruitfulness and contentment God wants to give him, even in the midst of trials. Just to give you an example of that, in working with uh, addicts, we minister every Friday night to anywhere between 60 and 90 men and women. And we tell them regularly, our goal is not sobriety. You can be sober and miserable. You can be sober and a thief. You can be sober and an adulterer. You can be sober and a liar. But you can't be Christ-like and be any of those things. Our goal is Christ-likeness. And our goal is not recovery. We're not trying to get a person back to where he was before, recover his sobriety. We're going way beyond recovery to likeness to Jesus. And that's why this is a discipleship program. And we say mature Christians 
are tempted to sin, and mature Christians often do sin, but no mature Christian is dominated by any sin. So the goal to get over our life-dominating habits and our sinful habits is to mature in Christ. So what is a biblical counselor and what does he do? This is a definition out of our philosophy statement. The biblical counselor strives to be a word-filled, spirit-empowered disciple of Jesus Christ who for the glory of God humbly and compassionately evangelizes the lost and assists fellow believers in their progressive sanctification in the midst of life's challenges through the Christ-centered ministry of God's sufficient word and in partnership with the ministry of the local church. What are our presuppositions? This is also from our philosophy statement. The biblical counselor affirms that the character and works of Jesus Christ are the only acceptable standard for human wholeness. The world talks a lot about healing. The healing that God promises is in the likeness of his son. And that all change, another presupposition, that all change in the way the counselee handles life must be directed toward that standard. The biblical counselor also affirms that love for Christ is the primary God-pleasing motive for change. Biblical counselors deal with human motivation, but it's, it's a human motivation that understands, it's a counseling that understands the motivation of a sinful heart wanting to go his own way. And that his resurrection and power mediated by the Holy Spirit is the only source of enablement for that change. And that his word is the only infallible guide on how to change, how that change takes place. A lot of broadly evangelical Christian counselors, sometimes called integrationist counselors, will use the Bible. And I'm speaking very, very generally here. Use the Bible to give comfort and encouragement and hope. But they don't look to the Bible as the guide for determining what this person's problem is. What does God say to those kinds of people? What does he offer himself? What does he offer about himself to those people? That's biblical counseling that does that. Biblical counselors also affirm that in the midst of trials, God's path to lasting joy and peace and to the love of God and others that constitutes biblical healing. You know what healing is for us believers? Loving God and our neighbor as ourselves. That is found only in the believer's growth in the gospel in cooperation with God's Spirit to become more Christ-like. The process of growth called progressive sanctification is fueled by a relationship with, commitment to, dependence upon, and imitation of the character and the works of Jesus Christ. While the goal of psychological counseling is often only symptom relief, God's goal for every spiritual challenge that believers face in life as sufferers and sinners is to advance in Christ-likeness. Human beings are at, at their core meaning makers, and the biblical view of man and his circumstances makes better sense than the faulty interpretations of human experience viewed through a biological lens. And I just give you here in closing an example of ministry approach for biblical counselors. I call it the care model. The following list of goals and duties is representative, not exhaustive, and provides a general overview of how biblical counselors approach their helping role to a fellow believer. I won't go through all the details of this, just the overview C stands for connect. Biblical counselors build relational bridges to the counseling. We do that by building rapport, building trust and and sense of safety, and so forth. Point B, biblical counselors assess. They determine the counselor's whole person's needs. 
They remain, of course, alert to any presenting crisis elements, suicidal thoughts, impaired cognition due to substance abuse, medical needs, threats to physical safety, and, and, and so forth. Many other things we try to assess. Point C, we also reconcile and restore. We address the counselee's next steps for reconciliation with God. That means genuine repentance and faith leading to salvation and or restoration of fellowship with obedience to and dependence upon God. We help the counselee establish the disciplines of Christian growth, which will promote growth in Christlikeness. And as often as possible, we identify and address the counselee's struggles by means of specific scriptures, appropriate homework, and appropriate accountability in order to promote sanctification. And we we assist the counselee in reconciliation with others if necessary, and that's often the case. And then lastly, we equip. We help the counselee to develop the knowledge sets to become fruitful in good works for God and for others. Knowledge sets and skill sets to be able to serve the body. Conclusion. Because biblical counselors have a scripturally robust view of man's fallen and spiritually based nature, they offer strategically different remedies to counselees than those advanced by secular and most Christian integrationist counselors. Though the remedies offered by biblical counselors are substantively different from secular remedies, this distinctiveness does not imply that biblical solutions are simplistic or instantaneously effective. The Bible presents spiritual growth in Christ through his word as a means of change. Growth takes time. God's own metaphor of growth implies time and attention and care and cooperation with God. Counselees are fallen, complex people being helped by other fallen, complex people. And variables exist at every interaction as counselor and counselee heart responds to heart. And as both respond to or choose not to respond to God, by God's grace, The biblical counselor attempts to compassionately and skillfully point the sufferers to the only one who can heal and restore wholeness as God works his change in the hearts of both the counselor and the counselee. That's biblical counseling. And that's how biblical counselors view man's problems the same way that God views man's problems. And tomorrow, as I said, some of the other speakers will tease out more details on some of these, uh, on these main points. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your dear son Jesus, thankful for redeeming us by the blood of your son. And we come to you thankful that you are in this ongoing, unrelenting process of restoring us to the image of yourself, to the glory of your Father. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we as your people would more skillfully cooperate with you in our own progressive sanctification and quicken us and give us skill to be able to help our brothers and sisters and to evangelize the loss that you send our way for the glory of you, our Savior, and of your great Father, and of his Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.